All right. We are in the Corinthian letters. We are actually at the end of the second letter. Uh, Paul, in the first letter, confronts them. In the second letter, he comforts them. In the first letter, he rebukes them. In the second letter, he tries to return fellowship uh, with them in that context. And as he gets towards the end of this uh, last letter, he begins to talk to them about the incorrect impression that they have of who is uh, approved of God. They have a tendency to look at the outside. They have a tendency to listen to people who claim to have visions. Paul says, I've got visions, but I'm not going to talk about that more uh, than that. I'm going to talk about my suffering because my suffering is the genuine proof that I belong to the Lord. And that suffering is in this life so that the glory will be in the next one. Now that's a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures. Jesus says, if you have your reward in this life, that's really not what you want. You want your reward in the next life. You don't want things stored up here because they won't last. But those things that are stored up in heaven will last. So we also want our judgment here, our correction by God here, not in the uh, eternal sense. And so... That's really a problem for American Christianity. American Christianity has, over the history of uh, preaching, been a little bit dichotomous. There was a time when uh, people tried to scare people into salvation, the turn or burn kind of thing. And then uh, in the 50s and 60s, we uh, moved into a uh, God loves you, you're so wonderful. God needs you kind of thing and God's this wonderful do-it-all-for-you kind of person. I come to Jesus and my life is wonderful. Both of those are not correct. Not because the actual texts that are used are incorrect, but because both texts are there. And in that sense, there is a need to have the whole counsel of God. Uh, God has justice and He has wrath and he has love, and he has mercy. And the way we look at that is important. If you, if you are exposed to the issue of love, and then you are corrected, that feels very, very harsh. If you are given correction, and pretty stringent controls, and then are experience love, that love is overwhelming. The order of how this is done is really important. And so the giving of the commandments, the giving of the fear of the Lord is the beginning place of wisdom. Ultimately, the fear of the Lord turns into trust and faith of the Lord. Ultimately, the restrictions of the commandments begin to make sense as the direction towards uh, blessing and purpose and so what happens is there's a mind transformation. If you get them in the wrong order, then you can actually misinterpret the harshness of the correction. Paul's worried about that as he corrected them. And now as he's beginning to try to establish his relationship with the Corinthians again, he still has to warn them that he is concerned about some things. He's afraid that when he comes to them, we saw this at the end of chapter 12. He's afraid that when he comes to them, 
they will continue to demonstrate their immaturity in Christ. And that God will end up humbling him further uh, in that he will have to be punitive towards them. And he doesn't want to do that. Now, we, some of us grew up in a time when uh, parents would say as they were about to inflict some pain on you, this hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. Uh, most of us never believe that. Uh, in my case, it certainly wasn't true. Uh, I think I experienced much more pain than my dad was experiencing in that. But the reality is that it is difficult to be corrective, to be punitive towards the object of your love. It's just hard to do that. It's hard to do that with children. You feel responsible for them. It's really hard to do that with grandchildren. You don't feel as responsible for them. And uh, so those kinds of things become a problem. And that's where grandparents can sometimes interfere with parenting because they, you know, uh, they, they actually are more lenient than they were with their own kids. And part of that is life and experience and maturity and wisdom. And part of that is it's just the way it is. You, when you have the responsibility, you have to have a little tougher setting. In that context, Paul is about to close the letter, and in that letter, that fear and that desire for my next visit with you to be good and not problematic uh, comes into focus. So we pick it up at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and we begin with the first four verses. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you, if indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we are also weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Interesting uh, statement. Uh, Paul's really basically saying in this third visit, I'm coming the third time. And now he's going to invoke a biblical principle. He quotes from the Torah. Uh, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, uh, every word uh, shall be confirmed. Um, now, this principle is found in multiple verses throughout the Bible. And if we had time, uh, we would look at each of them. It's found in Numbers chapter 35-30. That one I do want to look at. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 35 Verse 30, I decided to have you look for the one that's harder to find than the ones that are easier. Verse 30 of Numbers 35 says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall not take 
ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty, he shall be put to death. Now notice that the context of this one, the idea of multiple witnesses, is up against a capital punishment. That is common in the verses that we would look at if we were looking at them. These are about serious matters, usually about murder and the death of the murderer or excommunication, which is tantamount to death. Death means separation. Separation of death is the spirit from the body. Separation of eternity is separation from God. Excommunication from the home, excommunication from the community is tantamount to you're dead to us kind of thing. And so we see this in Numbers 35.30, in Deuteronomy 17.6, in Deuteronomy 19.15. This is carried over into the New Testament in Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about having two witnesses that every word may be established. And in John chapter 18.17 where Jesus says, the Torah says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word will be established. Paul now quotes it in 1 Corinthians 13.1 and we see it again in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 18 and in Hebrews 10.28. In other words, this is not just grabbing a proof text. Paul is talking about a principle. Now he has been with the Corinthians two times and the process has been rough. He's now going to come to see them a third time. When he first saw them, they just become believers. He brought them the gospel. They were new believers. Of course they were babes. The second time, he's expecting them to have grown, and they're still babes. He says, I have to talk to you as babes in Christ. You're divided over ministers, you're divided over gifts, you're just not growing up the way you're supposed to grow up. Now he says, I'm coming the third time, and I need to know if you are going to still be in that condition of habitual open sin. And I'm going to have to not spare you this time. So you can just see Paul like a mom in a store going. That's one. That's two. This is three. The pattern is now established. Think again that's important for understanding parenting and discipleship. You don't simply tell somebody someone and then punish them. They, there is a. You're looking for a pattern of rebellion, a pattern of disobedience. So two or three times becomes the pattern. Now you've got something. Anybody can do something right or wrong once in a while. But if you see a pattern, then that pattern has to be corrected. Paul says, if I come and this pattern hasn't changed, I will not spare you. I will function as you expect. For Christ is both judge and savior. You can have him as savior, or you can have him as judge. And so he talks about that in this context. So most of these references refer to serious judgment, death or expulsion from the community, as I said. So Paul's using it here to indicate that a pattern of behavior among the Corinthians is about to be judged. Their immaturity. They are to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord. They are to grow to a mature man. The purpose of being saved is discipleship, not to just be born again. 
This is one of the problems of our evangelism. We get people born again, and then we never raise them. And if a family had a new birth every year and never raised their kids, you would not call that a good family. You can't call that a good church if we're not raising and discipling and developing people into mature believers. I know churches where you can be there for 20 years and you're older after 20 years, but no more spiritually mature than before. So Paul's opposing that and he's telling them, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Uh, I'm going to handle that if I have to. Jesus was crucified in weakness, but raised in power. We became saved in weakness. We will have weakness in this life, but our focus and our goals towards glory with Him and the path uh, that we are addressing is about a spiritual pattern of uh, maturity. Now, we just read earlier in our service 2 Timothy 2, 10, 13. So I'm not going to uh, have you turn there again. But the scripture says, if we, uh, if we die with Him, we will live with Him. If we endure, in other words, suffer in endurance, we will reign with Him. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. The pathway is certain. But our trotting it is somewhat uncertain. And so the question is whether or not we really are on that path to maturity. We really are in the faith. Paul's not concerned whether or not you're saved. That's our question. I always say the, the current Christian American question is, is you is or is you ain't God's baby? And if you is, then okay, you're alright. And if you ain't, then you need to come to Him. But that's not Paul's question. Paul's question is, are you in the faith? Are you growing to maturity? Are you becoming in community with one another? That stature of the nature of the mature Christ towards the day when we will reign with Him. Are you really doing that? And so that's where he comes with the next two verses. So we're back to Second uh, Corinthians 13 with Paul's question. Verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or you, do you not recognize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now, Paul's comparing the Corinthians with himself in this context. Uh, not in terms of, I'm better than you, but whether or not I'm authentically, genuinely part of the faith. So, he says to them, test yourselves. This word means to prove you. You're testing something to see if it's done. You're testing something to see if it will hold you. That's what this word means. It's a you look for proof that you are in the faith. What is the proof that you are in the faith? It is proof that Jesus Christ is in you. So he gives us this statement of test yourselves, examine yourselves, whether you're in the faith. Do you recognize in you, that Christ is in you 
bringing about that maturity. The Spirit of God is in you, bringing about that sanctification. The Spirit of God is bringing about that growth towards adoption as sons that's going to take place at the resurrection. And he says, I hope you realize that that's in me. You can see in my life, you can see in my ministry, my struggle to be obedient to Christ, and in that you see evidence that Christ is in me. Why? Because, and this is really important, those who don't have Christ don't struggle. There is no struggle to those who have Christ. Oh, they have struggles in the world, but they don't have spiritual struggles. I'm always fascinated by someone who comes for counseling and they're, they're beginning to wonder whether they're a believer or not. And you know what it always is? They're striving towards obedience. They're striving towards faith. They're striving towards all this stuff. And they're just having a hard time getting there. And I say, that's proof that you're genuine. Because the unbeliever, or the pretender, or the assumer, doesn't doubt anything. Because after all, they're a warm fuzzy and God had to love them. There's a difference in the mindset. There's a humble fear of the Lord that we need to struggle with. And that uncertainty, the Bible gives us assurance for. doesn't give us certainty. It gives us assurance. So where is that assurance? How do we test whether or not Christ is in us and the struggle that we are engaged in is real? Well, turn to 1 John chapter 3. I love the epistles of John. They are, they are underrepresented in much of our teaching and uh, theology in the American church. Now, I would like to read the entire letter, but I can't do that. So I'm just going to read chapter 3, because chapter 3 overlaps most of the other chapters well enough to get the message. So John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And for this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Jesus said, If they hated me, they'll hate you. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It does not appear as yet what we shall be. He's talking about in the resurrection, at the adoption of sons, when we are no longer children of God, but sons of God. The Bible makes that distinction. The children are in discipleship. The children are in catechism. The children are growing up learning how to be adults. And what he says is, we don't know what it's going to be when that resurrection happens and we receive the adoption as sons. Remember, adoption doesn't mean taking a kid that's not yours and making them yours. It's like adopting the budget. We put it into full operation. We are being trained now to reign with Him in the kingdom. And at that point, we will receive the adoption of sons. John says, it doesn't appear as yet what we will be. We don't see it fully. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. For we will see Him 
just as He is. And everyone who has this hope, this promise, fixed on Him, fixed on Christ, purifies Himself just as He is pure. Now what does pure mean? Pure means single-minded. We drop the things that don't matter about that hope and focus on that hope. So he says, John says, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, Torahlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. So no one who abides in him sins. Now he means practices sins. No one who practices sin has seen him or knows him. Oh, it's just grace. It's just grace. I can do whatever I want. That is not a biblical message. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We've been called away from sin, not to practice sin, but to practice righteousness. Now, if you're practicing something, you haven't perfected it. But that's what you're working on. Okay? So, if I stop practicing the trombone and start practicing the piano, occasionally, I, out of force of habit, might pick up that trombone. But my, I put it down and get back to what I'm practicing. That's the notion he's talking about. So he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, catch this. The one who practices righteousness... Practices obedience of God's commandments. Is righteous. Why? Because he's headed in the direction of Christ who is fully righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. Because he the, the best righteousness is Christ. The best doer of sin is Satan. And we're on the road either practicing righteousness or practicing sin. So he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. That's the word in the spirit. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. You, you sin. We sin for a while. We get caught in it. And all of a sudden it just... God, get this away from me. That's not natural to human beings. That is the Spirit of God grieved in us, pulling us back to repentance. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Remember, that's Jesus' uh, new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Not as Cain, who was from the evil one, and he killed his brother. Why did he kill his brother? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. So don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from de out of death into life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that murderers have no eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brother, self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. Whoever then sees the world's goods, has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So, he, he, what is verse 23? This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He has commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. And we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit He has given us. Now Paul, uh, John here, gives it over and over and over and over, all through his letter. Basically it's this. If you believe that God sent Jesus, that He died and rose again, and that that is your way to God... And as a result of that, you struggle to love God, to love your neighbor, and to love one another. And that struggle is there. You can assure yourself that you belong to the Lord. And if you're just doing a little head thing, and really none of it bothers you when you're disobeying it, and you're really focused on the things of the world, you can pretty much be sure that your profession of faith was not real. John makes it pretty clear. You know, you check the compass. If you're heading north, you're heading north. If you're heading south, you're heading south. Now, if you're heading south and you go, wait a minute, I'm not meaning to head south. You turn around. That's called repentance. Every once in a while, we find ourselves going the wrong direction. And those who are believers will go, "Uh uh-oh, and turn around. And those who aren't believers will go singing Amazing Grace down the road. And they are the ones who will say to him, Lord, 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 Lord. He'll say, I never knew you. So, John helps us understand that. And Paul says, I want you to know, Timothy and Titus and I uh, are in the faith. And you can see it in our lives. Do you see us living perfect lives? No. Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't do, I end up doing all that. But that's the struggle. That struggle is proof of genuineness in faith. So now we pick up at 2 Corinthians uh, 13 verse 7. So Paul says, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. And this we pray for, That you will be made complete. For this reason I'm writing these things while absent. So that when I'm present I don't need to use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord has given me for building you up and not tearing down. Paul's praying for the Corinthians to do the right thing. For the sake of the right thing. Not for his sake. He doesn't want them doing the right thing so that they'll go, wow. 
Paul's people are really good disciples. Paul knows that he's going to be maligned and mistreated. So he wants them to obey Christ for Christ's sake and righteousness sake. Not to give him a good reputation. He's not going to have a good reputation. He says, just like a parent, I may not be able to do this. Some parents sacrifice so that their kids can do better. The goal of a parent is for their kid to do better. I want my son to have greater faith than me. I want my daughter to have greater faith than me. I want my granddaughter to be... I want, as the, the generations before me were walking away from God, I want the generations that follow me to walk with God closer. I want them to be a greater blessing to God's people and, and the blessing of God on their life. Uh, and that's what Paul's wanting. Uh, the teacher always wants their student to, to do more than, than they've been doing. Um, they're not above their teacher, but they will do more things. Jesus said, the, the, te- the, the disciple's not above his master. It's enough if he is as his master. But then he says to his disciples, you will do greater things than I do, because I'm going to the Father. You won't be greater than me, he says. But you will do greater things than I'm doing because we're expecting more out of the next generation. So, he says, A parent prefers that their children not suffer. They're okay suffering. Most parents will say, I'd rather take this than my kid have to take it. Right? So he's writing to them to give them a heads up. So that when he comes, they won't, that he won't have to be harsh and curt with them. Uh, Because they must know that he has an authority as an apostle for building up and tearing down. That's a fascinating statement. I don't know if it triggers anything in you. If you're a a wide Bible reader, enormous amounts of what Paul writes, and the other apostles too, will trigger all kinds of Old Testament verses to you. Now, the NASB has tried as much as it can to put in capital letters when it's a direct quote, and in the side column references where those old are. I'd like to do it, but if we put all of them in there, uh, it would just, some of Paul's writings, we'd have nothing but footnotes. We couldn't even put the text in, right? But I want you to catch this one, because this one's really important. I don't want to tear you down, I want to build up. What is he talking about? He's talking about the ministry of Jeremiah. So, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 9, God has told Jeremiah that he's calling him to be a prophet. And Jeremiah is still uh, under the age of 30. And uh, I'm a youth, and God says, don't say you're a youth. Okay, Uh, You will go where I send you, and you will do what I tell you to say. Uh, And don't be afraid of them. Because I am with you to deliver you. you can, that's also why Paul says to Timothy, let no man despise your youth. He knows Jeremiah well. Okay? Verse 9. Then the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day 
over the nations and over the kingdoms, to pluck down, pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Jeremiah was up against an Israel that was a disaster. And God had already removed part of Israel, and He's now going to do it to, to Judah. And Judah's going to say, God's not going to do it to us because we got the temple. And so Jeremiah is going to have to come down and say, this temple is not going to stand. Just like Jesus would say of the second temple. God is going to level this and then rebuild a remnant. What Paul's saying is, if I have to, I will break off the parts that shouldn't be in the Corinthian body and I'll start with a remnant and build it back up. I have the authority to tear down and build up. I don't want to do that. You should be growing in grace and in knowledge. Don't make me do that. Fascinating text when you know the the rest of the biblical framework. So, having said that, Paul now is going to, uh, after he's begged him, really, to don't act like children. Grow up, grow up, grow up, grow up. So that when I come, we can be mature believers together. He's now going to give them his encouragement and his blessing. And that comes in verse 11. So he says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I want you to look at verse 11. Verse 11 could be a series all of its own. He's given us a sermon outline. Finally, brethren, rejoice. You can hear Paul. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. How do we rejoice? Man, you're just, you know, you're kind of threatening us. You're going to take heed to what I said. You're going to move in the right direction. You're going to be rejoicing in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It is in the rejoicing in what God has done. And focusing that God is a good God, that you have the energy to endure and move forward. So he said, he starts with that. Rejoice. What does Ecclesiastes say? Life sucks and then you die. So, eat, drink, and enjoy the labor of your hands. That's the gift of God. If you take this world seriously, you're going to ride a roller coaster. Don't ride that roller coaster. Get your eyes focused on the eternal kingdom that you're going to be. Start preparing yourself for that. And every time you have a meal, and every time you enter Sabbath, and every time you enter a holy day, you're stepping into that kingdom for a moment to say, ah, that's what it's going to be like. And rejoice in the Lord. Think on these things, whatever are good, of good report. Then he says, be made complete. I love this. I Checked out the Greek. Literally, this says, get your act together. <laughs> right? Hey, knock it off. Get back, get back on track. Boy, 
We get off track all the time. If there's one thing that's human nature, it's that we start well and then wander. Got, I got everything ready. I'm going to do this. We do it for a few days. We're doing, and we and we like it. Hey, I'm making progress, right? And then something gets in the way, and something happens. And, uh, you know, I was doing a good walking a mile in the morning. You know, that was great. And then one day I couldn't do it, so I didn't do it the next day. And a day turned into a week. A week turned into a month. A month turned into about four months. So tomorrow morning. I'm going to get my act together and get back on the road. Walk that mile. Not the green mile. Just walking a mile, right? Although we're all on the green mile, right? (laughs) So, the idea then is get your act together. Rejoice, get your energy, get your motive. Get your act together. Be comforted. God is for you. I tell people this all the time in counseling. I love that it's one of the things that people use. I tell them, I want you to get up in the morning and I ask and ask yourself this. What if God were for me today? What if nothing that's going to happen today could separate me from the love of God? And people who take that mindset, by the way, it's a biblical mindset. If you thought God has good thoughts of me. And you walk in that way, it changes your attitude. So be comforted. Be reinforced. That's what comforted means. By, in the truth, by the spirit and the word in the community of faith. And while we're talking about community of faith, Paul says be like-minded. Get on the same page. Congregation. Body of Christ. You all should be focused on that. You should be encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day comes, figure out how to provoke one another unto love and good works. Encourage one another to go in the right way. If somebody gets in the wrong way, gently bring them back. Don't be harsh with them. Bring them back. And when they come back, don't say, don't do that again. Stop it and just encourage them and go with them. Man, that's hard. When I came back from my rebellion, Linda can testify to this, the last thing I wanted was to be with people and talk to people and all that stuff. It's the very thing I needed. And I had a group of people that loved me when I did this. That's the group. I'm over here. And when it was time to go, I'd get in the car and go. Because I felt disqualified, I felt unworthy, and I was irritated, and all that stuff was going on. I had the gift of irritation, right? And so, don't laugh too much. And the reality is, they simply loved me, not by smothering me, but by just being nice to me. Even when I wasn't being nice back. They would greet me. I never greeted them. They would uh, say something that I had done that they thought was good. I didn't say thank you. They just loved me back into community. 
And that's what people need. That like-mindedness is to treat others the way you want to be treated. You want to be welcomed. You want to be encouraged. You want to be cared about. That's what he's talking about. Live in peace. As much as depends on you, be at peace with all people. And Paul says when you do this, when you rejoice as your motive, you get your act together, you're reinforced by the word and the spirit and the community, you're in unity with your brethren and you live at peace with all men, then the God of love and shalom, wholeness, peace, will be with you. That's his blessing upon them. Then he says, one of my favorite verses, the original is, greet one another with a Hershey's kiss. It's misspelled here in the NASB. Uh, the holy kiss of Christianity that became ritualized was this embracing one another as family. Treating all the children of God as brothers and sisters. All the older men and women as fathers and mothers. All the children as sons and daughters. This immediately household of the family of God. Uh, that was demonstrated both in saying peace be unto you. Grace and peace be unto you. Shalom. And this embrace of the holy, uh, of the holy kiss. So after he says re, uh, greet uh, one another. He says, all of the saints, everybody who's with me, is greeting you as well. And then he pronounces, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A benediction that has been spoken over the people of God from the time of his writing in congregation after congregation after congregation. The idea that God's grace and God's love and God's community is, the, is that in which we live and move and have our being. Wow. Incredible possibilities. We can devour one another, Paul says. Or we can be complete in Him, in one another. You can't do it alone. Believe me, if you could do it alone, I'd have done it alone. But you can't do it alone. I need you, you need me. We need each other, we need our gifting, we need our personalities, we need all of that. Because the body is maturing. We're just parts of the body maturing. We're not the entire body maturing. So, the Corinthians had many dynamics among them that the American church also has. We have personality cults. We have gross sin being tolerated. We have disunity. We have competition over ministries. And we have incorrect forms of worship. The letters of Paul to the Corinthians both scold and comfort us as it did them. And as they examine themselves, may we also examine ourselves and prove ourselves to be in the faith. And that Jesus Christ is in us for certain. Let's pray.